0: This is the message given by Pastor Chris Hartshorn during the morning worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for June 4th, 2023. The title of the message is Praise and Proclamation. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all again. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 96. Or look in your bulletin. It's in there. That's better for you. Psalm 96. The title of the sermon is uh, Praise and Proclamation. This is God's Word. Please give careful attention to its reading. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Yes, the world is established, and it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exult, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in His faithfulness. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing to it. Let's spend a moment in prayer before we turn to the text. Heavenly Father, this is Your Word. And again, as we've been saying over and over again, uh, Lord, uh, it is revealed to us that we might hear, that we might respond, that we might be saved, that we might be changed, that we might be transformed. Lord, we pray that You would come. The same Spirit that inspired sacred Scripture would come and illuminate sacred scripture, and give us the ability uh, to understand, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive, uh, hands to apply, feet to walk it out, all for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, author John Dixon tells the story of being in a coffee shop one day with a friend, And he was uh, talking about how his church was getting the word out in their community about Jesus, getting the gospel out, getting the word to people about their church. And someone from a nearby table was overhearing the conversation, and finally they couldn't take it any longer, and they approached him and really let him have it, and said, so you want to convert the world, how dare you? And she stormed. Out of the coffee shop. How dare you for wanting to convert the world to Christ? So, question for us: you know, how do we, in our heart of hearts, honest with ourselves before God, how do we deal with that kind of response? How do we deal with that kind of feedback? Does it, make, does it make us rethink our desire to share the Gospel with people, to tell people about our God, our desire um, to see people converted and brought to faith in Christ? Is it really our place uh, as the church, as Christians, many in our day, professing Christians even, would say that it's wrong to talk to people about Jesus. Many professing Christians would say it's wrong to push your belief upon other people that don't believe? What do we say to that? Are they correct? How do we respond? Here's what I want us to take away this morning from our time in this text in Psalm 96, that the Lord our God is a great God. And He is greatly to be praised and worshipped by all Creatures, great and small, without exception. To put it another way, everything that God has created is made to worship and honor and glorify God. And that's what this psalm really gets to. You know, so many of the psalms, they're all obviously inspired of God and they're all profitable and they're all wonderful. But so many of the psalms leave us um, with questions because they don't give us context to when they were written or why they were written. But this psalm here, Psalm 96, uh, we know that it was written in relation to the time when King David uh, brought the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem. We know that because it's there in the text in First Chronicles 16. These very words are found in that chapter of the Bible. And it's so important, it's so instructive there that the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament Scriptures, and just kind of for a time stamp, for those of us who are a little cloudy on this or perhaps wondering, David lived about 1,000 years before Christ came, about 3,000 years ago. And so King David, the king of Israel, um, was trying to get the Ark of the Covenant to the city that God had chosen, the city of Jerusalem, and he'd had some troubles along the way. Uh, one of the men had reached out and touched the Ark on the way to Jerusalem, and God struck that man dead. And uh, David said, "Well, let's let's take a break here. Let's let's put the Ark in the city uh, in Obed-Edom's home, and uh, await further instructions." And now, a few months later, David. Uh, got his group together, and they got all the things in order just so that they could bring the ark to the city uh, of Jerusalem. And it's that text where David danced before the Lord. And his wife despised him for the way that he danced so freely before God. And it's in connection to that event that this psalm is written. Derek uh, Kidner talks about the the fact that Uh, This was the triumphal entry of the Old Testament where the ark uh, came into Jerusalem. He notes the symbolism of the march in which God crowned his victories by planting his throne in the enemy's former citadel. This is the place where the enemies used to dwell, but now God and his people are dwelling there and God's presence is there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem so David is very excited because God's presence is now in God's place this psalm paints the picture of God as king and really his enthronement as king amid his people but it's even bigger than that because as Derek Kidner says this hymn this psalm is about God being the king not just of Israel but of the world This is a joyful hymn, a hymn of celebration. This is also an invitation to the nations to join the people of God in celebrating the true and living God. This has been called the Grand Missionary Hymn. And then finally, and we're not going to really emphasize this, we'll mention it briefly, it's a prophetic document looking at the future time when God will fully judge, coming back at the end of the age to judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed, even Christ Jesus. It's striking to me as I read the Old Testament and as I read the Psalms, it's striking to me how many times when the people of God were in this small little area in the ancient Near East, it's striking to me how many times that the writers of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit call the whole world to worship. The people of God make their way into the city of Jerusalem, God promising to be in that box. And David writes, inspired by the Spirit, all of the earth, all of the peoples, all of the nations worship this God. And so we're going to just make two points, worship number one and then witness number two. Uh, The what of worship to start with, Scripture makes it clear that our priority as Christians is to worship the Lord. Again, the psalm makes it quite clear with several imperatives, one after another, uh, right off the bat. We're commanded to sing to the Lord three times in verses one and two. We're called to bless his name in verse two. We're called to praise him and fear him in verse four. We're called three times to ascribe glory to him in verses seven and eight. We're called to worship and tremble before him in verse nine. And so I think this would be a good place for us to point out something that oftentimes is not said And it's this, there is but one true king. Uh, There's that assumption, but it's not said at least out loud in front of the nations. There's one true king. There's but one God that deserves all of our allegiance. There's but one God that deserves the allegiance of all people. And those that don't give allegiance, those that don't bow the knee, are treasonous. They're treasonous. And the exclusivity of the gospel that so many people despise in our day is absolutely non-negotiable. Listen, we give people the right to worship other gods, but we undeniably tell people there is but one true God. All the other so called gods here in our text, the little g gods of the world, are but idols and they are nothing. They are a no thing and they are undeserving and unworthy of our worship, our praise, and our adoration. They are, in the words of this psalm, worthless. So God calls us to worship, He calls the world to worship, He calls His people to worship. And some believe that if it's not forbidden in Scripture, you can do it. It's called the normative principle, and a lot of churches do this, and a lot of Christians do this. But we, in Reformed circles, believe in what's called the regulative principle of worship, that God calls us to worship using certain elements that he lays out in the Word of God. God knowing that, left to ourselves, we would do it the wrong way. And so he gives us the elements, and one of them is singing. One of them is singing. This word that we see three times in verses 1 and 2, we are called to worship the Lord in our singing. It's interesting to me because um, singing, and you go back to the very beginning of, of the Bible, you see singing in the beginning of Genesis. Singing can be perverted. It can go the wrong direction very easily. Singing can be simply about me. Uh, singing can be simply about my enjoyment. Uh, we can sing in the shower and have a pretty good time with what we're singing. And, and singing can be enjoyable without being sinful, but singing in the Bible and singing in worship is all about God. And I think it's really important for us to understand that God created singing so that we might be able to worship him the way that he desires to be worshipped. Singing is about throwing or casting back to God and upon God some high thought formed by His Word. It's our response uh, back to Him about what He's revealed to us in Scripture, what He's revealed about Himself in Scripture. And so the the, the command uh, to sing. Um, so much of what passes for worship in our day, and I, I don't like to. Um, I don't like to cast stones. I don't like to, to point out negative things, but I do. I do just want to mention briefly: so much of what points uh, passes as worship ha- has nothing to do with God, and has everything to do with man. It's it's solely about me and my feelings and my emotions. And again, we 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 can. Sing about how we feel, but it's always supposed to be in light of what God says, what God reveals about Himself. And so singing is so very important. A a new song here. New songs come at different times, at new times in um, redemptive history. This is a new season. So there's this singing of a new song because God's doing something new. There's this new revelation in this new season as the ark has made its way, as God's presence has made its way into the city of Jerusalem. And so there's a new song. There are these new seasons that take place and we're just singing about in Revelation. A new song that was sung by the heavenly hosts and by the people there in the heavenly realm. New songs are wonderful things. Thinking about, writing about, singing about what God has done, is doing, and will do. Singing is so very important and necessary. I quickly want to say to those that don't like to sing or don't feel comfortable singing, uh, get your focus on the Lord. It's not a suggestion. It's not only for those who like to sing, it's for all of us who call ourselves worshipers of God. We must sing, we must sing out, we must sing well. Uh, you say, I don't sing, well, then make a joyful noise uh, to the Lord, as Scripture calls us to do. That's what I find myself doing. It's a, it's a joyful noise. But there's something wonderful about walking into our churches and to hear the people of God singing loudly and joyfully to our God. As regional home missionary of our presbytery, it's one of the things that I really think is important for our church plants that are smaller in size, that have less people for all of the people that are there to sing well, to sing loudly to our God. And so singing here, and there's so much that goes on that, that God calls us to do in these verses, um, but I want us to think about the why of worship. Uh, the what of worship, we're called to worship, we're called to do these different things as we, as we mentioned. Um, but the why of worship the why of worship. David was worshiping because God's presence was in uh, Jerusalem, but as we've been talking about in our service, uh, we celebrate the presence of God coming down to earth and the person of Jesus Christ in our worship services. The fact that God came down to save us. God understood that left to ourselves, we could not save ourselves God understood that we were rebels against God, and we would continue to rebel against God and pile up the sin debt against ourselves throughout our earthly lives. And so God came down in the person of his Son. And so we gather around the Lord Jesus Christ. We We think about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ after his perfect life. His sin-bearing death is the center of our religion. And we understand that our God is infinitely worthy of our worship for not only creating all things and not only sustaining all things, but for redeeming all people that will be redeemed. So... We bless God, which is to kneel, to praise, to submit to God, to be reverent, to have a sense of awe because of who he is and because of what he's done. We worship God because God is great, verse four, and has done great things. And you know, that word great in our day is so overused, you know, it it really doesn't mean much. Oh, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. Oh, okay, great. That's great. It's great to hear. And we've actually watered down the word, so it doesn't really mean that much at all. But God, it says in Scripture, is great. In the truest sense of that word, God is great in his magnitude and his extent. God is great in his intensity, his importance. Um, He is infinitely excellent in his wisdom and power And dominion. He is great over all things. He contains an unimaginable greatness. Only God is great. The gods of the world, the nations are but idols. He is great in his nature and in his essence. He is great in his authority over all things. His name is great. His power is great. His actions, activities, great. His judgments are great. But so are his perfections. Great is his holiness. Great is his love. He's great in wrath, but also in mercy, He is essentially great in himself, perfect in and by himself. His greatness not just being seen in the fact that he is, his greatness not not just seen in the fact that he exists, his greatness not just seen in the fact that he is our creator and we are his creatures, but he is the redeemer and he is great in his redemption. So he is infinitely great and infinitely worthy of our worship for all of those things. Beyond his greatness, we are called to worship God because of his marvelous works, in verse 3. Because he made the heavens, in verse 5. Because of his splendor, in verse 6. And majesty, 6. His strength, also in verse 6. His beauty, in verse 6. His holiness and his glory. Now I mention his greatness so much because it goes on to say not only that he is great in verse 4, but he's greatly to be praised. Going back to what we were saying before, a great God deserves great praise. He deserves to be worshipped by his church. That goes without saying. And that's what we're here doing this morning. We aren't here to get brownie points with God. We aren't here to check a box, I hope. We're not here simply because someone dragged us here. hope that's not the case. We are here because God is infinitely worthy of our worship. Let me say that again. We are here because God is infinitely worthy of our worship. We are here this morning because God created you, God made you to worship him. And the chief end of man is to glorify him and to worship him and to honor him both now and forever. So many people are so mixed up. So many people are so confused about why they exist. And I just want to remind you, or perhaps tell you for the first time today, that you exist for Him. So many people get confused and think that He exists for them. So many people are so disillusioned So many people, unfortunately, walk away because God doesn't do what they think He should do. You exist for God and not the other way around. He is not a magic genie in a bottle. He is not here to do your bidding. You are here to do His. And that is a glorious reality, and for many people, a hard reality to swallow, but a reality nonetheless. He is great, and he is greatly to be praised. A great God deserves great praise. If it's made by God, it owes allegiance to its creator. And so the created realm, as you look down at the end of the passage, the created realm has no problem with it at all. David personifies the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. All that God made leading up to the creation of man does as it should. God cursed the created order when he cursed man, Uh, after the fall, but it stands, according to Romans 8, on its tippy-toes, as Paul personifies the creation. It's standing on its tippy-toes until the redemption of the sons of God. The created realm is saying, let's get back to the way things were. Let's get everything right again. And God says, in due time. In due time. And so the Christian believer says, I know God is great. I know he's worthy of worship. I know I exist for him and I should bow the knee to him and serve him and honor him and glorify him. And I know that he's coming back at the end of the age to set all the wrongs right, to make all the things as they should be. As we read about in verse 13, he'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. I know these things are true. But there's more. And that brings us to our second And final point, proclamation. Proclamation. We won't spend too much time on this, but the first point being uh, our worship or our praise. The second point being our proclamation or our witness. John Piper wrote a book years ago on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, that has much good that can be gleaned from it. Piper said there that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. But he goes on to say that missions exists because worship doesn't. Because there are still people that need to come to know God, that come, they need to come to worship God. And in order for that to happen, missions has to take place. And so in this psalm, the call goes out. In this psalm, God's kingship is over all creation, and it means that all kinds of people should love him and worship him. Not only all kinds of people, though. All people, every single person, Person, the God of the psalms, which is the God of the Bible, lays claim to the allegiance of every person. And it is then the responsibility of those that do worship to then go and tell other people about our great God. And so in this psalm, the call goes out to verse 1. All the earth. Uh, it goes out to the nations, verse 3. And all the peoples, verse 3. He is to be feared above all little g gods, false, worthless idols. And so the church is commanded to tell of his salvation in verse 2, to, to declare his glory in his marvelous works among all the peoples, verse 3. To tell the nations that the Lord reigns, verse 10 to tell the nations that the Lord will judge rightly, verse 10. And so how does this happen? If Christians, once they have worshipped the Lord in their church and their homes, don't in some way proclaim praises with their lives and works and community, uh, how is this going to happen? You know, God God could, and he at at certain times does, you know, kind of just zap people apart from Scripture and apart from the witness of, of people. You, you do hear these stories, and they're extraordinary, of people just coming to know God uh, in this wild way. But that is not ordinarily how it takes place. Think of how you... As a believer, came to faith in Christ. Maybe it was through covenant parents. I'm guessing there were quite a few of you that were raised in Christian homes. But your your mom, your dad, your teachers, your relatives, brought the gospel to you, brought the word of God to bear in your lives. Maybe it was maybe it was um, friends. Maybe it was teachers. Maybe it was Uh, distant relatives, maybe it was uh, some random stranger on the street, but people were bringing the Word of God to bear in your life, reaching out to see, hoping that you might come to believe. And we understand that salvation is of the Lord. We we talked about it in our service already. No one is saved apart from God regenerating. No one is saved apart from God granting repentance and faith. But we go forth as Reformed Christians trusting and believing that God saves sinners. And perhaps, just perhaps, God will use us to reach people around us with the glorious gospel so that they would come in here and worship and sit next to you in the pew and worship the God they've been rebelling against all of their days. Like you would still be doing if it weren't for the grace of God at work in your life. And you say, but all these people that I know, they would never—they're—they're they're too good of a person. They don't think they need God, or they're too bad of a person. They would never come to God. How do you know? How do you know? The Great Commission given in Acts one eight begins where we are. It begins in our hometown. It begins in Jerusalem before it goes to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that means that we have both home and foreign missions. I'm a regional home missionary. My territory is Southern California and Arizona and Hawaii for our presbytery. We have foreign missionaries that serve overseas. But you, in a very real sense, though not ordained and installed as official home missionaries, are home missionaries. God gives you, as members of his church, as believers in Christ Jesus, the responsibility and the privilege to talk to other people about Jesus Christ. And I just want to point this out quickly before we close. Um, what we see in this psalm and what we see so oftentimes is Scripture is that our worship as we come in to worship and praise is to inform our going out. And the same things that we say to God in our worship, the same things that we hear from God as God speaks to us through His Word in preaching and the various elements of the service are the simple things that we turn around and tell other people around us. Look at verse 2. The singing to the Lord and blessing His name in the church in a worship service by simply turning around is the same thing you're doing as you tell of His salvation from day to day. That word, tell of his salvation, it's the idea of proclamation or announcing in other translations. It's the same word found in Isaiah 52.7 that says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Same word. We come in, and we hear from God, and we worship God, and then we go out and we turn around and we say the very same things to our neighbors and our co-workers and the people in our family who don't yet know the Lord. And we expect the Lord to bless. We expect the Lord to bless. And so God calls his people, I think it's very clear in Scripture, not only to praise, but to proclaim. Not only to worship, but to witness as general office holders in his church. It's very important that we come and that we're fed and that we're built up Worship informs and fuels and motivates our witness. Praise leads to proclamation. But then we go out and we tell others about this glorious God that we serve, this great God that we serve. David was so excited about what he was worshiping for, calling others to do the same a thousand years before Christ came. But God has done better than that. God didn't just come to a city in a box. He came to our planet in a person. He came in the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And when he came down he was victorious as well. Shorter Catechism 26 saying that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself and then ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. He overcame. He won the great victory. And now he's gathering a people to himself and for himself from the four corners of the earth, from every tribe and tongue and people group to be with him forever throughout the eternal ages as we read about in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 as we were reading about just this morning. We want to become intimately acquainted with that text of Scripture because, dear friends, it is our future. The greatest new song we must sing is that the resurrected Christ now sits on the throne of God and that he rules and reigns over all things even now. He has all authority even today and he calls his church to worship and he sends his church to witness. Because he has been given all authority, we therefore are commanded and commissioned to go and make disciples of the nations. There is no ground that he has not covered. There is no person that is not responsible. Mike Horton, let's close with this. Mike Horton says every day that passes on earth is a productive delay of the last judgment. In the meantime, Jesus is gathering a people for himself on earth. Again, he says, raising our eyes in faith toward God, we reach out to our fellow saints and to our neighbors with our hearts and our hands in love. He is working his plan, brothers and sisters. Let us praise him and worship him that we are part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you have uh, called us to yourself, that your saving grace is so abundant that you have gathered and continue to gather a people until the last person is gathered in. And you will bless your people throughout the eternal ages, world without end. We look forward to these glorious realities. Oh, Lord, give us great boldness. Give us great opportunities once we've worshipped to witness, once we've praised to proclaim the good news to a dark and dying world. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.